So we are closing up our follow series this morning, and it happens to intersect perfectly with Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, and the story of the triumphal entry has always intrigued me a lot. I love narrative passages. The Bible has a couple of different kinds of genres, but narrative stuff is always really fun for me to dig under the surface and see what's there. And there's a lot in this story. There's a lot we could look at. It teaches us about power and weakness and about obedience and humility and leadership. But today, we're gonna look at this story of the triumphal entry from the angle of worship. What does the triumphal entry teach us about people who want to be worshipers of God or people who are just kind of kicking the tires and thinking maybe I'd want to be a worshiper of God? Um, The stories we read in the Bible have an actual place. These stories took place on a real patch of ground with a history and a geography. And this one especially has this rich history. It takes place on the the Mount of Olives. And, And when I think about if I had a week left to live, where would I go? There are places I would want to go and people I would want to see. And this is in the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus goes in the last week of his life to the Mount of Olives. Not once, not twice, but three times. He's going to visit the Mount of Olives. This is where he goes to meet with his father. Um, There's there's just a lot of history underneath this place. It's only about 2,000 feet high. In fact, we have a map of it. It's only about 2,000 feet high, which I'm from Bend, and so in Bend, that's just a little tiny hill. But in Jerusalem, it's big. It's a big place. And this is the path that Jesus takes in the triumphal entry. He goes from Bethany. Um, Remember, Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. So from Bethany through Bethphage and through the Garden of Gethsemane and then down into the city of Jerusalem. But if you'll see that red line in the top, that is the entry of Jesus. But on the other side of the map, there was another entry taking place. On the first day of Passover, the Roman Empire sent Pilate into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city at that time of about 25,000 people. And for Passover, all good Jews made their way to Jerusalem. They all went there. And the city, some historians say, was as big as 250,000 people during Passover. Actually, Josephus, a a historian that was contemporary to the Bible writers, said they packed 2 million people in the city. I think that estimate's probably a little high. But 250,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, and it was chaos. It was clamor and chaos, and the Roman Empire did not want it to get out of control. Roman Empire, you'll remember, is the boss right now. The Israelites don't rule themselves. They're not autonomous. And so the Roman Empire, in order to combat what they feared would become an insurrection, sent Pilate, who was the governor of Jerusalem. They sent him into the city, and he was dressed for battle. He was riding a horse. There were horses and chariots and swords and 3,000 army members with him, surrounding him. It was a big old flex. He is like, I am here, and nobody better try anything. This is like your mom's version of, I will pull this van over. So the Pilate rides in, and it is pomp and circumstance. It is, it is uh, strong and powerful. And then Jesus, from the opposite direction, has a procession of his own, and it looks nothing like Pilate's. In fact, let's, let's read about it. 
This is Luke 19. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. So those who were sent went out and found it, just as Jesus had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they answered. This does not work with Teslas, by the way. Don't try that. (laughs) Then the Lord needs it. He does. Then they led the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, and put Jesus on it. As he rode along, the people spread their cloaks on the road, and as he approached the descent from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is the triumphal entry, and it is absurd. Have you ever seen a grown man riding a donkey? It's ridiculous. Their feet hanging down. The donkey looks like it's struggling. It's just, there's, no, there's nothing cool about it. And this is what Jesus chooses. It is such a contrast to the way Pilate enters the city in order to bring control and the way Jesus enters the city in order to bring peace. It's a message that some are going to love and some will not. This idea of Jesus for the people Uh, because they're waiting for a powerful savior. They're waiting for someone who will break the literal bonds that they're under from Rome. But Jesus is showing them that he's coming in a different way. And this is the the first question that's embedded in this story. Every time we read some kind of narrative theology, we have to say, what is this story wanting to read inside of me? And the question this story wants to ask you today is what do you do with your worship when Jesus doesn't show up the way you thought he would? When he doesn't look the way you thought he did? Here we see Jesus begin to very intentionally direct the sequence of events that will lead to his own death. He needs Pilate to be in the city so Pilate can try him. He needs to create a stir that looks like an insurrection so that Rome is willing to get involved. Jesus himself, Jesus is leading himself like a lamb to the slaughter for us. This image of Jesus on a colt just gets me. Zechariah 9.9 and several other regal entrances in history, Jehu's and Solomon's, we see this happen, but this one This humble one, this animal itself denotes not the Messiah of raw power, but the Messiah of redemption. It's funny to me because whenever I I look at anything, any story in the Bible, I think our inclination is always to kind of place ourselves inside of it. Like, who would I be? I would definitely be the one worshiping him. Even if somebody told me not to, I would definitely be the one worshiping him. But then I come in here on some Sunday mornings and I can't worship beyond my grocery list. You know, I, but I think I would be the one. I would be the one doing all the celebrating and the, you know, but I don't know. But when I look at this story, I think what I want to be more than anything is the donkey. Like, I, It gives me so much relief to think I could be a carrier of the presence of God and look ridiculous in the process because no one needs to worship the donkey. No one cares about the donkey. The donkey is just the vehicle for God to ride into a situation where he is going to be welcomed or not. 
The donkey is something I think I want to be. I want to be someone who carries Jesus into situations where people aren't expecting him. I want to be someone who's able to say, it's, you don't have to look this way. Just look at where Jesus is and who he is. No matter how well that donkey walks, nobody's going to give him any glory. And that's a good place to be. Um, if you're looking for palm branches in this story, you won't find them in the Gospel of Luke because Luke is someone who is writing not to the Jews and palm branches are a uniquely Jewish thing. There's a history there and it's kind of complex. So Luke doesn't take the time to try to unwind it for Gentiles who are reading it. And I love this part about the Gospels, how they're all written from a different angle. And I just wanna mention that the week after Easter, we're starting a whole series in Luke, looking at the eyewitnesses of the people who had encounters with Jesus and how it changed them and how it reveals him. And I want you to jump into that series because it's going to be so, so good. So um, Luke specifically mentions that the disciples start this worship ruckus. The disciples who have been following Jesus start to praise Jesus. Do you remember why? It says for all the miracles they've seen. They've seen so much in their time with him and they start to just worship him spontaneously and then the people with them start to worship as well. And this explains to us how the same crowd shouting crown him this day is gonna be shouting crucify him days later because they're not actually following Jesus, they're following the followers of Jesus. And this is the second question embedded in this story for us. What do we do with our worship when the person we're following to get to Jesus changes direction? What do we do when the person who was our hero, the person who told us what this looks like and how a life of faith looks like changes and isn't what we thought they were, isn't who we thought they were? What do we do with disappointment when we were following a follower who fails? It's a good question. The disciples here are having a really good day, finally. They're having a good time. Their guy is on top. His approval rating is soaring. They, so they go ahead right there on the Mount of Olives. They decide, this is up to us. We'll declare him king. I guess we could just do that. We're going to just crown him king right here. And at that point, the Pharisees step in and they're like, uh-uh, he is, you got to shut them up. You got to make them stop because the Pharisees know if they declare Jesus king, this is going to be called an insurrection from Rome and they don't want to attract any negative attention from their bosses. It says, but some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, exclamation point. I tell you, he answered, if they remain silent, the very stones will cry out. They're essentially asking Jesus to reject the worshipers claim that he is the king and Jesus tells them it's hopeless. If the humans are quiet, the rocks will shout. He's telling them that truth is truth no matter who does or doesn't get it. And he's further telling them that they are less perceptive than a rock. All of creation understands who God is. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Even the firmament displays who he is. All of creation understands who their creator is. It's only smart humans that don't. It's only us with our very advanced minds and our very cool technology that wonders, hmm, did we make this ourselves? And so Jesus tells them, all creation knows me. 
In fact, Romans 8, 22 says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so here the story takes a hairpin turn. This moment is very intense. The situation could not be more tragic. Jesus is standing at the dissonance between the shouters and the shushers. He's between the worshipers and the cynics. He's between Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. He is face to face with just how hard-hearted humanity has become, and he alone knows that they are missing the very rescue for which they are longing. The rocks get it, the people don't. It's messed up, and Jesus knows it. And as he keeps moving <clears throat> toward Jerusalem, he can't hold it anymore. He gets about a half a mile out from the city, and he looks at the city, and tears start to roll down his face. Can you even imagine the scene? Jesus riding in on a ridiculous donkey, people screaming and shouting to him that he is king, people crying Hosanna, people throwing their clothes down in front of him, and Jesus riding on the donkey with tears rolling down his face. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is a prophecy. It's going to happen 40 years after this date. The Roman Empire is going to park their catapults right on the Mount of Olives and they will destroy Jerusalem. And Jesus is weeping over what he sees coming because he knows there's a better way for them. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. I want to draw attention to this scripture real quick because let's pay attention Let's pay attention to the fact that Jesus had just, has just said, whatever is going to happen is going to have generational impact. It's not just going to impact you, it's going to impact your children within you. That means the children yet to be born, generations to follow, dreams that haven't come true yet, visions you haven't seen happen yet. All of this is in the balance right now as Jesus weeps over the city and sees this is not going to go the way they think it's going to go. This is an important statement because when I see a statement like this, there's something that these people have done that is going to cost them generationally. There's nothing I would be more willing to fight for than my children and my children's children. And so if I read something that says, this is a something you might do that would cost you your children and your children's children, I want to ask the question, what is it? What did they do? What got them here? He says, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Another translation says, you didn't recognize God's moment when it came to you. Apparently, it's possible to sing a lot of worship songs fervently and not be a true worshiper. Apparently, it's possible to worship and let the words come out your mouth, but never have them reach your heart. In Matthew 
15, Jesus speaks to a group of Pharisees and he quotes Isaiah to them and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And those guys would have probably nodded along and said, yeah, you're right, Gentiles. You're right. And Jesus is like, it's you. You're the problem. It's you. And I have looked at this in my life. It's so easy for me to see that it, it's other people. But it's harder for me to spot in myself. I think I've told you this story before of a time when I went to my church in Bend and I got there a little late and as I was walking in, there was somebody in the lobby who met me in the lobby with a, a, a little word over my life <laughs> and, and, and how I'm not their favorite speaker, not even, at, even a little bit. I'm probably not even in the top 2,000. And I went in and sat down and I felt broken and sad and and I sat there and a lot of things were going on in my head. Very few of them worthy of Holy Week. And I'm just thinking and, oh, and this is so unfair. And, da, da, da. and at, throughout that time and tirade in my mind, I never stopped singing, never stopped worshiping. How great is our God or whatever it is. If it was, you know, 2000, probably that was that. And I realized I'm worshiping you with my mouth, but my heart is far from you, and I've done it so many times. It's so easy to forget that we've invited the King of glory to ride into this space. I want to welcome him like I would if he visited my home or my city. Welcome him. So how do we do it? How do we become people who worship in spirit and in truth? How do we become, as Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman, True worshipers. I think there's a lot of different ways, but there's just three I want to look at this morning. The first one is true worshipers position themselves to see him. How do we position ourselves for God? It's not necessarily that we walk into this space every Sunday morning ready to worship. It's not necessarily that we play the worship music in our car or whatever. We position ourselves to worship in exactly the way Jesus told us to over and over and over and over again throughout his ministry. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, the word repent, I know, can sound a lot like a preacher on a street corner screaming at you. But the word repent actually just means to reorient, turn your attention another direction. Turn away from sin, yes, but also turn away from some good things. Turn away from good works, turn away from cynicism, turn away from self-entitlement, turn away from maybe some of your rights in order to see God, in order to fully face the kingdom that is here. It is not even up to us whether or not the kingdom is here. Jesus already told us it is. It's only up to us whether we will turn and face it. We turn and face the king of the kingdom. It's repentance when we move toward him, when we reorient our thinking and our feeling and our relationships and our body and our soul toward the person and purpose of Jesus Christ because we live in an utterly, entirely disoriented world. We are mostly stumbling around trying to figure out where we fit and how to be happy in a place that feels like it's going bananas. And in this place, we have this opportunity to say, I'm going to turn and orient everything that I am toward Jesus. 
toward him, toward his face, toward his goodness. I'm going to orient around him. We position ourselves to worship through repentance. It's not necessarily a popular message, but it's the only one I've got. It's what Jesus said. Turn and you'll see me waiting for you there. True worshipers bring their whole hearts to worship. We're wholehearted. Even the ugly stuff. Even the stuff we really don't want to bring. Even the stuff we don't feel like we should show him. Even our doubts. Psalm 51 is such a good example of that. Where David comes in the middle of his, his life is pretty much falling apart after his sin with Bathsheba. And he just brings all of it to God in worship. Just brings it to him. Sometimes we just have to bring our whole heart, all the stuff we're feeling. Teresa of Avila is one of my favorite people to read. She was a... Um, Catholic uh, nun back way, way back, I think probably 1500s or something. But um, she was a prolific writer and she is famous for having at one point been going somewhere to serve God in some way. And she got knocked off her horse and landed in a mud puddle. And she said, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. And I think sometimes that's exactly what we have to bring to God. Here's my honest thought, even about you. I don't know if I'm seeing you right. I want to see you more clearly because right now the vision that I have for you in my head seems like it's not how you want to be. This, this doesn't seem like who you've said you are. Show me the truth of who you are. True worshipers bring their whole hearts, even the hard stuff. But then true worshipers are willing to part with bitterness and offense and cynicism. It's worship cyanide. David said, I enter your gates with what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the portal. It's when we say, open up, swing wide, you heavenly gates, let the king of glory in. You know what ushers the king of glory in? Gratitude, thanksgiving. It's what opens our hearts up to his presence. Thanksgiving has saved my life more times than I want to count. And bitterness and offense always, always holds me back. Always. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Put away all clamor. I like that word. It kind of encapsulates all the other words. It's just, do you ever come in here and you just feel like there's just clamor in your head? So much going on. Maybe you read something in the news before you got here. You had a hard conversation or you're wondering about who you really are and there's just clamor going on. And a true worshiper says, okay, I'm going to bring that into the presence of God and I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to let him take it from me. I'm going to let go and let God have this moment. That word, it says, put away all malice, all bitterness, all offense. That word in the Greek, put away, is actually the word for anchors away. Pull up the anchors of the stuff you're holding on to in your heart that makes you think, I don't want to do this. I don't think I can worship today because I'm busy thinking about how my enemies have treated me or how I don't like a person or whatever. And say, I'm going to pull up the anchor and I'm going to move from the spot where I'm stuck and I'm going to set my sail for wherever worship wants to take me today. I'm going to set my sail and I'm going to see where the Holy Spirit takes me. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving. 
That's part of worship. We bring him all of ourselves into worship. I was raised in a very large, very Mennonite family. Uh, My grandmother had six siblings, and they all had families, and they all had families. And we used to get together every summer for a family reunion. And we would drive 13 miles down a very winding logging road to Drift Creek Camp. And we were all nauseous when we got there. And um, we would gather around good food and vats of coffee. Mennonites don't drink. And we would, the men would gather around the horseshoe pit and they would talk about how Chevys are better than Fords. And the women would literally bring all their photo albums. Remember photo albums? They would bring all their photo albums and pile them on the, on the tables and go through page by page. And they would always bring the old ones too. Like I remember seeing my great-great-grandmother in a photo album. And, and um, we would just gather and we would be together. And it strikes me now that that was a group of people hanging on really hard to a lifestyle they felt passionately committed to while the world was moving on without them and taking their kids with it. And on Saturday nights, we'd have a talent show. And on Sunday mornings, we'd gather together in a little forest chapel for worship. And... I personally was raised, my parents had left the Mennonite community and they had raised me in a church that was ridiculously loud and, and worshipy and sometimes they even danced and they had instruments, which Mennonites don't typically do. And so I came into that space every single year. I came into that space with a little bit of judgment, a little bit of like, too bad they're so behind, too bad they're so serious. But then we would get together on Sunday morning and my cousin Gil would always start worship and he had a pitch pipe because we didn't have instruments. And with just their hearts and their four-part harmony, they would launch into my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And every time, without fail, I would feel closer to Jesus and that I belong to something very beautiful. Every time it would raise goosebumps and make me cry as I heard them sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I belong to a family who got a whole lot wrong, but they stopped to recognize the moment when God came in. They always gathered around the moment. They were the people who joined together with all their harmony and all their conflicting ideas and all their disagreements, but sang together to the one solid rock that all other ground is shaking sand. So I've been in ministry a long time, 30 years, and I've heard more complaints about worship than any other thing times a billion. People complain about worship more than anything in churches. It's too loud, it's too soft, it's too fast, it's too slow, it's too boring, it's too crazy, it's too radical, it's not my style, they write too many songs, they sing it the wrong way, they wear skinny jeans, whatever. I get it. 
I have heard more complaints about worship and I have probably complained more about worship. And I've heard people say, I don't even see how they expect God to show up. Those people are so messed up or broken or whatever. I'm sorry, I give you the triumphal entry as evidence that God shows up to people who are in fact just about ready to crucify him. He shows up. He shows up in our weakness. He shows up in our failure. He shows up in our fast songs and our slow songs. He shows up. And I love these guys more than I can say. I know them. I respect them. I can't believe how talented they are, but I am telling you this morning, and they will agree with me, they are just the donkey. That's who they are. You choose worship. In every single scenario, we get to choose, will I look for the real Messiah as he shows up in this moment, or will I miss him? Will I look for him? Or might he pass me by while I'm sitting here saying, I don't want to sing that song again. Oh, I am telling you with all of my heart, I want to be a house that joyfully, passionately, and in whatever way you feel worships Jesus. I just want to be that house. You can do it however you want. I don't care if you're a hand raiser or not. I don't care if you're a clapper or not. I don't think it matters one bit as long as you look to the real Jesus as he rides into this place because I'm just silly enough to believe that if we ask him, he comes. If we open up the windows and the doors and the gates of our heart and, the, and we let go of our cynicism because we know it's just not cute anymore. If we're willing to say, Jesus, I am opening up all of myself to the life that is you and I'm gonna welcome your moment as it comes to me. What might happen? So we're gonna sing this song again. It's a song I was singing in my office before I came out here today. And I just want us to, again, in whatever way you feel, would you welcome the King of Glory on this Palm Sunday? Would you welcome him into your life, into your heart, into your problem, into your success, into your failure, into all the places? Would you stand with me? And they're gonna lead us, and then I'm gonna come close this up. I would like to end this service with a benediction and I would like to invite you both to open your hands and I'd like to also invite you to my family reunion. Because every meal and now every Thanksgiving at my family, we start the very same way with the doxology. And so for our benediction today, Jamie's gonna be in charge of it because you do not want me to lead you in this song. Praise God.